Welcome back to Talk Evidence. Well, we're in lockdown. We're recording this at home, totally remotely. We're in three different cities. Uh, So if this sounds a little different, that's why. Before we get into the evidence, I just wanted to say that, obviously, in this crisis, we're going to be focusing very much more on COVID-19 across all of the podcasts that we do, not just talk evidence. So for the next few months, we'll be mostly talking about that. Um, As the evidence is quickly changing, we're also going to be doing some extra talk evidences, trying to keep you up to date with that changing picture. So uh, this is the point, if you've not subscribed, um, to do that. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts from, and we'll try and keep you abreast of uh, everything that we know. So now that's over, uh, it's time to introduce ourselves. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by Helen and Carl. Helen, can I get you to introduce yourself? I'm Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor uh, for the BMJ, and I'm coming to you from Bath today, where it's very sunny. And uh, Carl, how about you? Hi, uh, it's Carl Hennigan here. Uh, I'm not quite sure what my role is anymore. I'm in my hut in the garden in Oxford. It's the COVID hut. You might hear some birds in the background if you listen very carefully. And uh, I am also Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. Great. And uh, I'm, as everyone's saying this, recording from Brighton and I'm looking outside and there are some seagulls circling. So if you can hear that... Uh, in the background, that's why. So, uh, Carl, you've been doing an awful lot around uh, COVID-19 at the moment. It's been a busy time for you. What have you been up to? Well, one of the things is um, when it started to emerge and particularly the guidance changed in not only in the UK, around the world, we started to realise that there were a significant number of questions that were coming at us all at once for contextualised evidence about things like face masks to drugs to what about steroids, what about treatment of pneumonia in community hospitals. And what we did is put together our team at the centre, but a huge number of people who've joined us to start producing rapid evidence reviews, trying to answer some of the questions that can help clinicians on the ground, particularly in this first few weeks, facilitate decision-making. Because what's really important here is that actually everybody doesn't panic. And there are issues here which are having to be made up on the hoof, like how do you examine somebody when you've only got uh, a few minutes because you're overwhelmed? How do you minimally examine people without actually touching the patient? So there are loads of things you need to do differently. And we're trying to help produce some of the evidence to help them decisions. Great. Well, uh, we're going to get into some of that in a second. But, you know, as always, we do a start and a stop in talk evidence. Um, And we've got a couple of them now. So uh, for a start, we are going to be talking about symptoms. Now, I've had something. Um, I've had some sort of cough, maybe a very slight temperature, but this is the uh, time of year that we're all getting respiratory infections anyway. So who knows if it's COVID? Helen, have you got any clarity for me there? Well, this is exactly what I've been thinking about this week and what I've been hearing lots of my clinical colleagues talking about. And I think it is time to start thinking more broadly about the symptoms of um, COVID-19. 
So a lot of the public information has been very centered on fever and cough or dry cough and breathing problems, because those have been the things that have been triggering self-isolation here in the UK. But in our previous podcast, we mentioned that there were various case series starting to come out describing symptoms um, that people have had. And some of those have got quite big now to about a thousand people or so. So I think it is time to start looking at the spectrum of um, symptoms that people have, because I think out in the public, people might be kind of falsely reassured by only having a runny nose or, or um, just feeling a bit under the weather. And I know Carl and his team have been working a bit on this. And, and I think we should hear more from him on the kind of symptoms that um, we're starting to see. Yeah, look, I mean, it's very interesting. I think there's sort of been a hone down on just two symptoms, hasn't there? Fever and cough. And if you've got fever and cough, you've got potentially COVID and you should be tested. And if you haven't got them, you, you should don't require testing because you might have something else. That is being shown by the evidence emerging to be incorrect. The first thing is to say, if you look at the Diamond cruise ship, and there was a piece in the BMJ which looked at the uh, village in Italy who tested all the people in the village, that actually half the people in this outbreak will be asymptomatic. They just won't know they've had it. So they may feel a bit unwell, they might feel a little bit hot, but they just would not present normally saying, I've got symptoms. So that's number one. Number two is then is to say there are much more than a cough and a fever. There's a whole myriad of symptoms that appear in a systematic review, which has 19 studies in now, the majority in China, but some outside of China. And these are systematic review of what, Carl, of of the case series? So there is, yeah, systematic review of 15 cross-sectional studies and four case series. That include the study you've just included, which is one of the largest studies. There are lots of preprints. And then there's stuff that's gone through journals that actually has some element of peer review and some element we feel of consistency and accuracy. We're finding lots of problems with the preprints. We're just not quite sure how they arrived at the figures, whether they're accurate. They don't have tables with numerators and denominators in. So they've been rushed out there. So we feel like when we look at them, and we've even got one where it's, it's, been, it's been published twice with the same data and they don't look the same. So we're focusing on the peer-reviewed publications. And I think there are some important aspects. The first thing we're railing against is providing a point estimate. So what you'll see is, for instance, 90% of people have a cough. Well, actually, across the 19 studies, cough in adults varies between 48 and 74%. So there's actually quite a wide range, depending on where you are in the context. Fever is much tighter, 89 to 96% of adults. But get this, in children, fever is 28 to 60% of children. So much less, much higher variation. So what we're seeing is, even if you just go on fever and cough, a significant proportion of people will have COVID without them symptoms. And then other symptoms are a whole myriad of things, from fatigue, myalgia, headache, diarrhoea, loss of appetite, Some people will have sore throat, 3 to 20%. And then there's some other things, tachycardia, anosmia, conjunctivitis, like your eyes are burning. So there's a huge variation in the symptoms. And I think this is what's making this such a, 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 not just, not an interesting, interesting is the word, but but a, a difficult disease to deal with. Because it's spreading rapidly, because half the people are asymptomatic, 
Some people have symptoms that are not consistent with what you think COVID is, and they may not be tested or are let out back into going back out into the workplace and infecting other people. So what we're saying is in this current situation, anybody with symptoms that looks like an acute respiratory infection should be tested for COVID because they've got a chance they actually do have it. Well, that's a pretty clear uh, message there. And I think testing is going to be a theme of this podcast, uh, definitely, as we as we go through it. Um, Helen, did that help you at all? Do you think that uh, your clinical colleagues will be any yeah, more Yeah, I think, I think it does. I think it com- confirms my suspicions from reading the um, isolated case series that I've read that the symptoms are broader. I hope it helps clinicians have a lower threshold for suspecting it. Can I put you on the spot here? Um, I think this is a really important issue. And I've, I've been speaking to David Noonan here. We've been working in the centre. And we think it's uh, the information that's out there is not helpful. So one of the things is we're, we're putting together today the whole symptoms with the confidence intervals. And what we want to do is put out a really nice infographic out there so people can go, here's the, 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 the image and here's all the different symptoms. And I think we should do that fairly urgently. And you've got BMJ infographic people there, haven't you? We've got people here. We could do something really neat if we get you the right data and get that out quick. And I'm going to say you heard it first, folks, on Talk Evidence, because I think that would really help a nice image that goes, look, here we go. And adults and children I- is quite helpful because they are different in some, some of the symptoms. I think that would be a very useful thing to do. And so we can pick that up after this. Um, but beyond symptoms... You're ever, think... the diplom- ever the diplomat, Duncan. <laughs> Always. I need to be with you too. Um, okay, so that is uh, stop thinking so narrowly about the symptoms yeah. of COVID-19. Or start now, thinking another question. more broadly. <laughs> As always. <laughs> um, it's more positive. Yeah. So uh, that is one question maybe opened up instead of answered. But uh, uh, another big question that's happening at the moment is around treatment of the actual uh, infection. Um, We've had Donald Trump on the TV uh, standing there with Anthony Fauci in the background looking slightly worried about these things, um, advocating... Uh, different different things. So uh, perhaps it's time that we should talk about uh, evidence for, for treatment. I know. Actually, I've got a good one for here. Well, I don't know if it's a good one, but I have some evidence. Um, and I was quite, uh, quite pleased to see that the New England Journal of Medicine have put out uh, a trial um, of a treatment. Um, so they have published um, a negative study looking at hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who have saturation um, of oxygen of less than 94% on air or a ratio of partial pressure of oxygen to the fraction of inspired oxygen of less than 300 milligrams of mercury. And they compared uh, lapinavir, ritonavir at 400 and 100 milligrams respectively for two weeks or standard care. Um, And they measured the time from randomization to improvement. Um, They were looking for a two-point shift on a seven-category scale um, or to discharge from hospital, whichever came first. Um, And the study randomized 200 people, uh, split between these two groups, and they didn't find that there was uh, a difference. Um, 
but it was kind of pleasing to see that some of these first studies of treatments um, were coming through. This one was done in China. Um, there was a linked editorial with it, which was interesting interesting to read, um, particularly the comments uh, around um, sort of, is this it for this drug combination? Do you just sort of give up and mm. say, well, this doesn't work? Um, or um, do you carry on? Because there was some suggestion of improvement in mortality, but these were very small numbers. And there was some evidence that the standard care group uh, were sicker. Um, they also picked a really sick population of patients. And there was a question about whether the treatment was sort of being given too late in the disease course to have uh, that much effect. But great to see some some trials coming. And, and I think this is an issue that we should come back to next week and take a much closer look at what trials are going on and what we're um, perhaps going to be able to anticipate seeing in the near future. Mm, and what we would like to see as well. I thought that I thought the Donald Trump issue was very interesting because he went on TV and said there are very promising drugs and we've got azithromycin and chloroquine and everything's going to be solved. And I thought this is a triumph of not just opinion, it's political opinion over evidence-based medicine mm. and to be honest with you, it was incredibly unhelpful. If he'd have got up and said, look, we are seeing a, a, a significant number of clinical trials on the International Trials Registry platform. There's over 500 trials registered there now, in excess of 100 drug trials. We think this is a huge success and we await the results. You might have gone, that's really helpful. But in particularly picking out certain drugs, what he's done is highlight that to the members of the public who have gone buying these drugs and stockpiling them. And we're aware of an individual in America who's been taking one of these drugs, chloroquinine, and it has serious adverse effects in that it prolongs your QT interval and, and it can kill you. And that's exactly what's happened. So on one hand, political opinion is really problematic here. You're right, though, is to say about this trial, to see it out so quick is amazing. But also there are some issues that I have a big problem with now. In the last SARS outbreak, we didn't we learned that we didn't learn anything <laughs> because we weren't ready. It was too slow. And by the time we ramped up the trials, the outbreak had disappeared. This we've got some trials. But I think what we should have done is the advice out of that was to say we need standard protocols, standard outcome measures. And we need a process for living reviews where the data is fed into. So if a second group is doing a trial on this, they would be using the same drug combination with the same outcomes. And you'd be able to update it to understand whether this mortality outcome is, as they say, no benefit was observed. That's what I wouldn't have said. I would have said, actually, we are still unclear because the margin of the confidence intervals is still so wide. What we need is a a higher powered and more people in our study. We await the results from other trials of this combination and particularly the mortality outcome. This could be not beneficial, but it also could provide a mortality benefit that's as big as they say, 5, 5%, you know, that would be really important. And who is it that should be sort of coordinating some of this across, you know, there are all these groups doing different bits and pieces. It seems like if the world came together and and someone well, just organised it, it would be much more sensible. I'm going to get, in my heart now, I'm going to start ranting because this should be happening and we should have been, this should have been part of the pandemic prepared planning. This should be functions like World Health Organisation. All of these people who get billions of dollars to do work in this area should have sorted this out. 
and we should have been in a place where we go, right, Operation Pandemic Trials is happening. Here's the 10 candidate drugs. Here's how we'd like them rolled out. Here's our standard outcome measures. Please get on it. And it's going to funnel in through the World Health Organization to a live data set that could be updated weekly going, here's what the outcomes look like. I have a concern that competing interests are at play here because we don't like to share, we don't like to facilitate and work together because we want the glory of the first trial. And I think, I get that, but in this situation, given we've shut down half the world, we have to think a bit differently about how we can coordinate. Well, I don't together. think the public would be very impressed with that if that's the attitude that people are taking. Well, I think, I think, I think I'm hoping. You know, it, 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 sometimes you have to shut down half the world for everybody to go, we get, we've got to do something differently. We are doing an amazing amount of trials and I think what it, it can be done, it just needs everybody to start working together, doesn't it? And then you'd be able to say, we could have answered this question, chloroquinine questions, other questions rapidly, and we'd be able to view it in the public so clinicians can make decisions in real time. Mm. And I suppose that is the kind of question uh, you want the WHO to do to, to provide some leadership on that. But not just about treatment, but about things like prevalence, um, maybe making mm. sure that, that testing is uh, done in a way that actually provides some, some useful information. And Helen, you talked to someone who had some concerns about this and who's been quite vocal in the... Uh, yes, I did. I... Um had a chat with an EBM giant. I'm going to describe him as earlier in the week. Um, I had a talk with Professor John Ioannidis about his concerns around the quality of data um, that's being collected, particularly mortality data around COVID-19, um, and concerns about how, well, how a low quality of mortality data really means that we have so much uncertainty in some of these modelling studies that are going on, which is so key to the policies and decisions that governments are now taking to physically distance us from each other or close schools or the, these types of interventions. So here's John Ioannidis, Professor in Disease Prevention at Stanford University. Practically what you see when you have an outbreak, uh, you see the worst cases, those that have the severe symptoms, uh, the worst outcomes. However, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Usually there is uh, far more that is going on in terms of uh, infectious load in, in the community. And the question is, how much more is uh, the part that you're missing? So the, the early estimates, if you take uh, the case fatality ratio or infection fatality ratio for uh, SARS-CoV-2, the quote by the WHO was 3.4% based on early data that uh, looked at the nominator, how many people died, and the denominator, how many cases we have documented uh, based on testing. However, testing had been extremely limited almost all over the world, and it was not based on representative random samples of the population. In one setting where we have a representative uh, sample of uh, the entire population at the moment, or close to that, is Iceland that has a very uh, well-designed uh, study covering the Icelandic population. They test uh, volunteer samples that represent the general population until the time that we're talking. Uh, based on what they have tested, they see about 1% um, infection rate in the community which is about 3,500 uh, Icelanders being infected, and only one death has been recorded, uh, which is uh, an infinitesimally lower rate compared to the 3-4% that uh, 
that went into the original calculations. Another situation is the uh, cruise ship, the, the Diamond Princess, where everybody was tested, more or less, with a few exceptions, and the uh, number of deaths were 7 out of 700 people found to have been infected, which is 1%, but this is a very elderly cohort if you adjust for the age structure and gender structure in that population to project it against uh, uh, a typical general population of the U.S. or the U.K., the infection fatality rate uh, is much, much lower than one. With a sample size of 10,000, you can get a very reliable picture with relatively limited uncertainty uh, about uh, what is the ballpark that you need to know to make uh, informed decisions. So, it, it can clearly tell you whether we are at 0.1% uh, of the population or 1% or 5% of the population being infected or, or higher. And, and this is really what, what we need to know urgently and be able to, to track in terms of uh, big changes uh, downstream. Uh, if the, the percentage is very low, uh, then uh, the, the, the best strategy would be to uh, just uh, try very, very forcefully to track every single case and the contact and make sure that you isolate people who are infected. If the proportion is already pretty high, then the the strategy of locking down the entire world and, and closing it shut for, who knows, according to some projections, 18 months could be entirely catastrophic, not for uh, thousands and millions of people, but for billions of people. In In that case, the best strategy, depending on what the exact prevalence is, might be to protect the populations who are at high risk, make uh, really draconian measures to make sure that they do not get exposed to and get infected. And this would be people who are uh, elderly and have severe underlying diseases and uh, let the rest of the society uh, continue to to run its life and, uh, and be productive and care uh, for these individuals who are susceptible. Ideally, we need data from multiple sides. Uh, of course, each country uh, could have its own peculiarities, uh, and uh, there could be different uh, uh, issues involved uh, in each country. The, the more unbiased data we have, the better. I, th I think that uh, it would be nice to have data from uh, extreme cases, uh, including, for example, Italy uh, and other countries that are probably in the mid-range and others that seem to be in the low range. The, the more data we have, the better. Having listened to this, from an epidemiological point of view, there are a few terms in there which people might not be familiar mm. with around the kind of case fatality and infection fatality. And Carl, you explained this really well to me the other day. And will you do it for listeners now? Yeah, it's very important, this point. Case fatality rate means you're explaining the death rate in all those cases that you've detected disease and have a positive test. However, what you really want to know is the infection fatality rate. How many deaths have incurred in the whole population of all the people that are infected? And in this case, half the people are asymptomatic, so they'll never turn up for testing. So you immediately know any case fatality rates are an overestimate and at least double what the mortality rate is likely to be in all of those infected. The message that I kind of got from John from that is that if we got a genuine population sample in one or maybe a handful of locations and tested 10,000 people, I guess we'd need a kind of serology test rather than the molecular ones that are 
going on at the moment to test whether you have the virus. We want to be testing for whether you have had the virus. Do you think that would solve a lot of the problems that we're seeing with with policy now? Well, yeah, look, just look at today's figure. The case fatality rate varies between 12.8% and 0.2%. Israel is the lowest, actually, today at 0.2%. So you know there's huge variation. Then numbers vary over time. So this is a problem. People look at it and go, well, look, we've got data on 400,000 deaths. We must know what we're doing. What you end up with is the problem of big data, precise estimates, but they're nowhere near the target. It's a bit like I always explain. It's like you're throwing darts at a dartboard and all the darts are really close together, but they're nowhere near the bullseye. (laughs) What John was describing is you want a really accurate estimate and them darts will just sit around the bullseye. So you know when you get the answer, it's bound to be the truth. There'll be a little bit of uncertainty. And in doing this well in 10,000 people, you would have been much better to be able to estimate if you take 10,000 people, this is how many people have the infection. When they die, you ascertain whether they died from the disease or died with the disease. How and do that's we ascertain that, important to know that? How do you differentiate yeah. someone well, that actually well, just, died and that was the major thing as opposed to someone that's, you know, quite crumbly and frail and there's other stuff going on and this is sort of something that just... Yeah, so, and I mean, the crude way you do it is at least you do it through death certification. You can say what was the primary cause of death, what was the secondary cause of death. And that's one way of doing it. You can have a committee that looks at it. But we do this in clinical trials all the time. We say, was this adverse event, this serious unexpected adverse event, caused by the drug, or was it happening anyhow? And you can do that with a clinical committee. You can do it very rapidly. And so give you an example. If somebody was admitted to hospital with four comorbidities, had a major ST elevation MI, and also had COVID, you might go, hmm, this may be a secondary event because actually look at all the other parameters. They were so bad and they, the infection was likely contributed but didn't cause it. Whereas if you had a younger person who came in with ARDS, had re- respiratory viral pneumonia, had a respiratory arrest, you're likely to go, we are putting direct causation on COVID. At least you would have that answer. And the problem is in places like Lombardy at the moment and some of the Italian is everybody who's got COVID is being called as a COVID death. In the longer run, and I'm talking to people in Italy, we will be ascertaining how many deaths were directly contributable to the agent. And we always know when you come after the event, many deaths are not assigned to the infection and assigned to other causes. And I'll give you a good example. For instance, if you'd basically got run over in the street today and you went into hospital and died in hospital and they said to you, oh, and by the way, post-mortem, you already had coronavirus, would you attribute that death to coronavirus? And that's an extreme example. This, and I think that's how you have to think of the problem. What we know in all these outbreaks is wherever we start, they come in with very cautious models, which are the worst case scenario. And the 80% estimate is basically a doomsday prediction in my mind. There's a recent modelling study that's in the Lancet come out of Singapore that said, actually, with a row of 2.5, you would have only ever got to 30% of the population infected. Uh, There's modelling studies coming out that are saying 30% of the population are already infected if you've got half the people who are asymptomatic. So the problem is some of these models 
come down with too much certainty and don't reflect the sort of wide spectrum of uncertainties right now. And if you thought about that, we should have never got to the point where we said it's 80% infected, half a million deaths. It should have been actually somewhere between 10 and 80% and 20 and, and half a million. The problem is right now some of this, this fight over data is not helping us clinically on the ground when we've got to deal with the situations. Look, I, I do want to caveat. This is this is um, a difficult issue to deal with right now. We are seriously going to have to get our heads together because I think what the problem is, is that the vir viral epidemiologists are completely different from what I consider the clinical epidemiologist in un understanding and interpreting the data. And I think what needs to happen here is the two groups need to get, get together. The people who think about what happens clinically look at a much ranger, wider range of uncertainty and would be trying to answer this in a slightly different way than the people who are the viral epidemiologists who seem to say it's all about the deaths and all about the numerators. And what John's saying is we need to create some denominators so we can understand what's going on. And I'm totally with him on that. Hmm. And a way of creating that denominator um, is with some data. And uh, and in his interview, uh, John mentioned Iceland. And uh, Helen, you've been busy because, again, you talked to Carrie Stephenson, who is uh, involved in the work there to try and actually test uh, the almost the entire population. He is CEO of Decogenetics, which is a biopharmaceutical company based in Reykjavik. The healthcare authorities in Iceland began screening people considered to be at high risk in the beginning of February, and they found the first positive individual on the 28th of February. So I think that Iceland was probably the only country in the world to begin to screen before there was a single case in the country. But we decided on the 7th of March to offer our help because we believed that it was very important to know how widely the virus had uh, entered the population in general. Because when you're making decisions on, on containment efforts, it's extraordinarily important to know where the virus is. So if it is all over the society, it is really difficult to base a decision solely on individuals at high risk. So what, what, so what we did was that we offered anyone who wanted to be tested to be tested as long as they did not have the signs and symptoms of COVID-19. And we have by now screened about 6,000 individuals. We have found about 54 positive. So the we find this in about 0.9% of the population, of the population that we screened. And when you look at that in the sort of, in the bigger picture, there are about 620 who have been diagnosed with the disease. And there has been a team from the time when the first individual was diagnosed, there has been a team that has been tracking contacts with those who are diagnosed. And we have, you know, six, seven, seven thousand individuals in quarantine. But at the same time, as the as the healthcare system was focusing in the beginning, particularly on people coming from the ASPs, from the high risk areas in northern Italy and Austria, 
the population screen has shown us that as they were focusing on people coming from these areas, there were a lot of people coming from countries like England who were infected. So, so now we sit up with, let's say, 620 individuals who have been diagnosed. The possibility that 1% of the population is infected, which would mean that uh, there would be about 3,000 individuals infected who have not been discovered yet. So it's extraordinarily important that we continue to screen and increase the volume that we screen to help to find those who are infected so we can effectively use containment efforts. The, the first question is how widely has the virus distributed in the country? Number two, where is the infection coming from into the, into the country? And since we sequence every single you know, sample that tests positive, and we have sequenced now 380 viruses, whereas the rest of the world has sequenced, all the rest of the world has sequenced 1,000, we, we, we can place the virus in every single infected individual in Iceland in the context of geographic origin. There's a haplotype that associates with, with Austria, another with Italy, a third with England, a fourth with the west coast of the United States, etc. So we can pretty much trace where this has come into the country, and subsequently, we can also use this to track the infection in Iceland. We can determine who was infected from whom. But what we have been generating are data that address this question, how, how many individuals are infected in the population, which is necessary to be able to calculate out the death rate. All right? And, and it Absolutely. is the big question, is, is this, is this uh, disease very lethal? Or is this disease all over the place and therefore not very lethal? And I think, it, I think that what we are seeing, first and foremost, is that the disease uh, caused by the virus has a very, very broad spectrum when it comes to severity. There are those who go through this as a common cold, and some even describe this as a mild cold. cold. And then there are those who become deadly sick. And, and um, sort of the data we have, you know, are not yet particularly good data to address the question of lethality because we are so early in the epidemic in Iceland. We are sending out a manuscript today, and we are going to deposit our data in the public databases today. So uh, we are indeed hoping that uh, this will be useful for the rest of the world. It will be useful for people to, to model the disease. And there is no one else. There is no one else who has been doing screening of uh, people not suspected of having the disease. So, so I think we have a valuable contribution here.
So it's quite interesting. What they have an advantage over is they've got a defined population. That's not too large, aren't they? They can set a denominator of about 350,000 people in Iceland. And it's much easier to understand what's going on at that level. Multiply that by a factor of 10 or 100. So you're at 50, 60 million people. It becomes much harder to do what they're doing because they can know exactly how many people came into the country from which areas around the world. You couldn't answer that in London Heathrow. It'd be impossible. Mm. But I think there are a couple of points that are really interesting. If he's saying it's 1% in Iceland and they're importing it in places like London, then that tells you it must be more than 1% in London. It must be factors of 5, 10 out our estimation of the current incident. It'd be far greater than what we consider. If you just looked at the cases, we think there's only five, 6,000 people got this infection. In fact, right now, it could be five, 6 million people have got it. And that's the problem which John's pointing to. We've got no idea what that denominator is. And if we understood that, that might help us understand how much herd immunity we've got, how many people get severe disease, and then how we have to prepare to manage them in the hospitals and ITU departments. Um, Can I have a shout-out? Can I have a shout-out to all my colleagues who I'm talking to and dealing with who have school children, and I'm aware Helen has one of them. I was (laughs) made aware today by date. I know he won't say to me. I just uh, I seem to have taught David Noonan's daughter about epidemiology, evidence-based medicine and systematic reviews because he said she sat here for half an hour, sat on my knee listening to me while I'm talking away about this stuff. Incredibly challenging times all round and people are doing an amazing job. And I know Helen's one of them because she's stuck at home her husband's out at GP land and you're in isolation as well. well we're all in isolation. He's in GP land, but virtually from his computer, we're doing a, we're doing tag team sort of mini three hour shifts, uh, shift, shift on work and then oh shift on the kids. So yeah, they're, they're in the paddling pool at the moment. So apologies oh. if you get some of the, uh, the noise from that. <laughs> well, I could hear the screams coming through. <laughs> it's screams of joy. So shout out for everybody who's in that situation. So this has been a really full, quite an intense COVID-19 podcast. We've had uh, advice on what to think about when, when at the very beginning of this, when people are, are symptomatic, what are those actual symptoms? Through treatment and what we need to do to actually treat the virus and the evidence to underlie that. Uh, then we went on to trying talking about testing and prevalence in the population, which is really important when we're thinking about the models that we use to to determine how big this virus is going to go and what kind of measures that need to be in place to uh, to prevent that spread. Through what they're doing in Iceland, where they're they're trying to get ahead and, and maybe do some uh, work that could help influence uh, that decision making all around the world. We're going to be back next week with even more evidence for you, uh, much more on treatment, and we'll be talking to some people who've been looking, doing a, a, a really in-depth look at, at that. So um, you're going to have questions about COVID, as uh, everyone else does. So uh, have a look at bmj.com slash podcast, which 
where you can find out how to get in touch and you can let us know what you want to know. We can put that to Carl and everyone else we speak to and hopefully uh, answer some of your questions. Um, to hear those answers, make sure that you'll subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. All the information that we have on COVID-19 is on bmj.com slash coronavirus. So check that out as well. So uh, until just next week, not in a month's time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care of yourselves out there and we'll see you next week. Bye.